The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, medical science, frustration, optimism, and more science. Wednesday, the 11th of August, 2021, the late winter series continues, as does the COVID-19 pandemic, especially here in Australia. Scott Morrison has a one-page national plan to transition Australia's national COVID-19 response. And some science. But what does it mean? Well, joining me from Melbourne is medical researcher and science communicator Ubali Divisekra, also host of the Real Scientist Twitter account. Uh, and from Cairns, it's infectious diseases physician Dr. Trent Yarwood. Uh, there's a lot to cover, so let's just get on with it. Well, not quite get on with it. One point. We're nearly at two years of this, you know, we're, we're, and, and so we should be developing some understanding of how this might pan out. Indeed. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm National Plan to Plan to Have a COVID-19 Plan with Upali Divasekra and Dr Trent Yarwood. Upali Divasekra, Dr. Trent Yarwood, welcome to the pod. Welcome to Quarantimes for all of us again, eh? Hey, Still, how are you going? Hi, Trent. <laughs> Hi, Upali. Thank you very much for having us, Still. It's great to chat. Well, this yeah, is you. your idea, and I will say this. This episode was triggered by the two of you having a chat about risk, wasn't it? What was that all about? Well, we were talking about uh, the vaccines, uh, for COVID-19 and how they were being rolled out and their relative efficacies and how they were being presented by the media. And so we thought, well, it's probably important that people have the right information and that's how that discussion arose. Sounds fair. Look, we will come back to that, but let's run through because we're all in different parts of the country. Uh, Trent, I'll start with you. You're the most recent uh, member of the Quarantimes fan club and in lockdown in Cairns. Yes, indeed. This is this is actually the the first time that that Cairns has been properly locked down. So it's um uh, it's been quite interesting to you know actually see just how much of a difference it's made. You know, there's no one on the roads, there's no one at the shops. It's it's you know we've we've finally joined the rest of the country in in the whole stay at home times. Welcome, and yet. Yeah, welcome. I was about to say because Upley, you're in Melbourne, uh, which which is either the gold standard of lockdown or a fascist dictatorship. Or <laughs> I mean, there's no in between, is there? Apparently, there isn't. I mean, I spent most of uh, you know the first year of our of our uh, quarantine or our pandemic in in New Zealand, and being in Melbourne has been an experience by comparison because. Uh, Apart from the major lockdown that we had, we only had, say, maybe two in Greater Auckland. But here it's been, I think we're up to our third in two months. Well, <laughs> and yes, and, it, and number six overall for Melbourne. Oh, goodness, yeah. And so for uh, me it's sort of like, wow, this is actually quite terrible. <laughs> isn't it just? And, and here in Greater Sydney, I mean the Blue Mountains, but that counts as Greater Sydney. This is week seven of a lockdown which is either eh, much the same as what Melbourne has or totally nothing at all and, again, nothing in between. We might come back to that. But, look, 
First, I wanted to clarify just where we're up to these days with the National Plan, because we have a document with the wonderful title, National Plan to Transition Australia's National COVID-19 Response. Nationally. Uh, nationally. The important thing is that it's national. (laughs) Well, yes, because then Scott Morrison can put his face on it. Here it is. National Cabinet has agreed to new vaccination targets to ease restrictions and reopen Australia. Under the four-phase plan, lockdowns will become less likely and international borders will gradually reopen. The next stage will be triggered when 70% of the population is vaccinated. These are targets for all Australians to achieve. States, territories working together, communities working together, individuals, GPs, pharmacists, Australia will get this done by working together. The targets are there for us all to achieve and for us all to work towards. So Scott Morrison there on the, the 30th of July, so not long ago, being angry about something and, and I think more setting it up so that if it all goes wrong, we're to blame because we're going to work together for these targets. Thanks, mate. <laughs> well, given the fact that it's a national plan and we all have to work together and that the plan is in fact only a single page we could each like have sort of a third of a letter each and then the plan is done because it's basically content free uh, it is i mean it's oh full of words i i of course i have linked to all of these things uh, as we always do but this this national plan is literally one page it lists out the five phases and each one is headed measures may include and they talk about, well, we'll ease restrictions. It's like, well, how much? Which restrictions? It's, it's my we'll I was to, taught. We'll aim to vaccinate some people. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, like you say, it's, it's completely up to us and we have to work together as a nation while we pit states against each other. Um, but I think what's most interesting is that, you know, now it, it was also an attempt to kind of, you know, penalise states who went into mm. lockdown, i.e. Victoria. Um, but now now it's like, well, looks like we're going to have to stick with them, folks, because otherwise we're going to, you know, all be in a lot more trouble. I've been resisting and I've been quite outspoken about this whole thing turning into a party political thing. But it's clear to all the commentators that Scott Morrison's big plan for the next federal election was for him to be the COVID hero and save Australia and and everyone would thank him for it, which, I mean, does work in the polls. But unfortunately, over the last three or four months, nah, the polls are really starting to work against him. Not for Labor, but against Scott Morrison. And and he he, he wants things to point at. He wants yeah. announceables, and here we are. The journalists didn't seem to want to play a game with that either because I caught the some of the press conference, not quite all of it, where he was launching the national plan, and he spent most of it talking about the $300 incentive, which was a Labor idea. So that was sort of really took all of the wind out of the sails of, of the plan. Well, see, that's it. It's about how Labor is bad. And yet, does he realise that Labor is not in government so really they can say anything they'd like? It won't make a scrap of difference to what happens because they're not the government. But, but can anyone tell... But can anyone actually tell the difference of who's in government anymore? Ha-ha, yeah. ha But in any case, like like you say, it's just a whole lot of words. There are no actual targets. There's no actual actual guidelines. There's no actual measures that are outlined. And so he can take the credit 
for whatever might go right. Uh, but it's also like it's taking right. you what eighteen months in a Absolutely. pandemic to get phase to this one. Point, let's let's vaccinate some been people. Now, was... All right, there wasn't a vaccine available, What's... and yes, it's wonderful that we have two or th- soon three available in Australia, where we thought. I mean, a year ago, the idea that we would have working vaccines any time during 2021 was was like an amazing thing, right? That's I know. Very true. And now we have people <laughs> bitching about whether they don't, you know, I want the I want the strawberry vaccine, you know, I don't want, I don't like the brand. Look, I'm not, you know, I don't want to give the government's vaccine rollout a free pass because it has, by pretty much every measure, been completely woeful. But worst in the OECD, etc. Etc. Yes, but you know you can sort of see some points where they have had pretty bad luck. Like the 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 government's plan obviously was to try and bank on AstraZeneca and or oh, sorry AstraZeneca Oxford and the mm-hmm. the UQ um, vaccine, both of which could be manufactured in Australia. You know, it was a, a nice way of sort of playing into vaccine sovereignty and that sort of rah-rah patriotism that the government seems to really like. And then the the UQ vaccine fell over because it, it gave people a false positive screening test for HIV, which is obviously not something that you want, and they, they pulled the pin on that. And then the European... Can I just say very quietly, though, that as a gay man, for a big swathe of the population to suddenly be told, ah, oh, you might have HIV, it gives them a bit of a... Absolutely. A wake-up call, shall we say. Yep. And then the European trade restrictions on the AstraZeneca, you know, and, the, and them not sort of sending us a big a big shipment of vaccines that we were kind of counting on. You can see that that, that would have been a, a major plank of our vaccine platform that they sort of had pulled out from under them. But that doesn't excuse them not making contingency plans and, and you know, who knows what all the, the furor in the media about the vaccine discussions um, with Pfizer mm. were. Huh. Huh. Uh, which Kevin Rudd has solved now, of course. Um, look, before we go too far, we should say that now the Doherty Epidemiology has produced some modelling to support the government's plan. So I like this, plan first, modelling later. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the best quick explainers of this is from the Saturday Papers, Rick Morton, who's been doing fantastic coverage of the vaccine rollout, of the government's plans, its effects on he on has. everything. He's been, he's been so fabulous all through the pandemic, really, I think. Here is uh, him from Tuesday morning 7am podcast, just a, a brief grab. Most of this revolves around Australia's vaccination rates. Uh, It's now largely accepted, of course, based on increasing evidence from around the world and here in Australia that vaccines are the way out of this. Uh, Even if they don't completely stop case numbers, they do severely limit serious illness, hospitalisations and death, and that's where the focus needs to shift. That under phase A, at the present time, lockdowns should be optimally early, stringent and short. Uh, Right now we're in phase A. Uh, To get out of phase A and into phase B, we need to hit 70% of our eligible population being fully vaccinated. As we reach 70 and 80%, uh, the need for long stringent measures across whole of states or across extended areas, uh, we believe will be substantively reduced. Lockdowns in phase B are less likely, but they are possible. So in phase B, theoretically, lockdowns are far less likely, but they still remain possible. Uh, social restrictions will be lighter. And at this stage, Australians stranded overseas who are fully vaccinated could arrive back home. When we reach 80%, we will move into phase C. 
Um, we will abolish caps on returning vaccinated Australians. We will lift all restrictions on outbound travel for vaccinated Australians. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said that lockdowns would be almost non-existent in this phase, but if they did happen, they would be highly targeted. Again, we don't really know what that means. Indeed, and if you then look at the wording of Phase C, it says, in Phase C, Australia will seek to minimise serious illness. And I thought, I thought that might be a good aim throughout the process. What, what does that even mean? Well, yes, um... Measures may include maximising vaccination coverage, minimise ongoing baseline restrictions, uh, which will be adjusted and they'll be highly targeted and all of these words. Now, I will say, uh, uh, Trent and I have at least skimmed the the Doherty modelling. It's pretty solid stuff for what it is. Which is? (laughs) Which is modelling that has been given an end result and then the epidemiologists are told to um, retrofit the reality to see what can deliver these aims. Now, look, I should say, so Trent, tell, tell me what, I mean, it really does say at these amounts of vaccination levels in the population, these, these are the kinds of risk factors. Yeah, there's a there's a section in the the modelling which has got some nice, relatively simple to interpret li- uh, uh, column graphs, looking at the the relative effects of sort of standard public health measures, things like physical distancing and and you know our public health response, and then vaccination coverage, and then the additional um, public health interventions, things like lockdowns and and you know, number restrictions in venues and all, all those sort of things that we consider to be extra, and you know, what it really shows is that until, certainly until the vaccination rate gets above 70%, that we're not going to fully control COVID without all of those additional measures. And it just seems at the moment like we're so far away from from that, um, uh, you know, from that 70% vaccination figure. We're about, well, not even 20% fully vaccinated at the moment, is it? Or it's even less than that. And um, someone sent me a, um, a link to a poll that was published in The Australian today saying that there was a very substantial proportion of people who said that they would rather just, you know, they're not vaccinated, but they're going to wait for Pfizer. And, you know, I think that that, oh, you know, AstraZeneca is terrible and unsafe and, and you know, I just want to wait for not, Pfizer. We have to keep repeating that. Yes, 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 I was I was going to get to that in a, in a minute. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's it, the we're really seeing the the outcome now of the consistent front page reporting of this person had this incredibly rare complication of the vaccine and um, you know the look oh, I don't I don't think Atagi's messaging has been mixed they haven't really changed what they've said at all but the way that it's been reported you know health information is complicated and it's often not suitable to being reported in a two sentence soundbite and exactly. and you know we're, we're really seeing the the outcome of that now. Hoopily, this is your territory, isn't it? It's another miracle fat cure, isn't it? (laughs) Cancer cure breakthrough. When when it means four rats didn't die on this particular occasion. Okay, as someone who has actually worked on (laughs) a very well-studied immunotherapy that is now in phase two clinical trials, (laughs) um, uh, it's 
we do it we we do a lot of work before we get to that point because we can't publish but it's definitely been an issue on how all of this has been reported uh, and and propagated um, and it's about understanding levels of risk of course which is a complicated thing it's not easy to communicate but there's also I, I get the feeling that no one's really bothered trying that hard uh, and understandably, I think most people are like, look, I just want to know, is this safe or not? Should I take it? Yes, no, that's it. Because they don't have time to make those, you know, assessments. Uh, but it has been pretty catastrophic the way that this has happened because as, as, as I mean, this is actually the main discussion that Trent and I had had, which was that it is, a, you know, the negative responses to vaccines and not even just specifically AstraZeneca and this is an ongoing issue are relatively rare uh, and with the the what would you call it the responses or the complications that have arisen uh, from the AstraZeneca are also extremely rare. Um, Trent do you know I mean I, have, I haven't looked at the the data that closely but do you know if there's a any predisposition that can be drawn, you know, from the data that we have so far that ha resulted in people getting those complications? Look, there's been a bit of discussion about um, people who already have sort of underlying low platelet counts and whether that might be a predisposition. But to be honest, I'm I'm not across sort of all the ins and outs of it as, as, as much as I could be. But, you know, look, I just absolutely agree with what you're saying and, and you know, just want to reinforce the message for everybody listening that the vaccines are overwhelmingly safe and it was a couple of weeks ago on twitter now but i just did a very rough back of the envelope sort of calculation saying that you're at least a thousand times more likely to die from um from covid than you were from from having any complication from the astrazeneca vaccine and you know the it's it's such an issue that me you know the the bug guy and outspoken get your vaccines right now person had to um go off at my mum on the phone because she said, oh, we've decided to wait for Pfizer. And I'm like, you have not, ah, you, know, oh. you, will, you will go and get your bloody vaccines right now or I'll fly down there and kick your butts kind of thing. Oh, no. One oh, of dear. the interesting papers about AstraZeneca, uh, there's some research, and I don't know the status of this, but was the, the thought that given that the, the blood clot problems with AstraZeneca were happening in a completely different way from how an older person would normally develop blood clots because of their underlying health conditions, that it was actually because the nurse administering the vaccine had actually managed to hit a vein and inject it intravenously instead of intramuscularly, which is a thing that obviously happens a certain rare proportion of the time. Yeah, look, everyone's got little little blood vessels in their arm and, mm. um, you know, sometimes... It's probably a when good thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, that was one of those little things that sort of blipped up and then and then seems to have gone away again. But like a lot of the the sort of well the the Twitter science of of this, it's it's <laughs> which based, is the best science. After Twitter all. science is the best science. And real um, science is spending, the best Twitter science. <laughs> real scientists sorry. is is the exception <laughs> to all of all of the rest of the science on Twitter. Um, no, no, right. not at all. Get the plug in. Um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, right. Yeah. So that, that was based on an article that was published on one of the preprint servers archive, mm. um, which is where you stick up your work before it's gone for peer review and all that sort of stuff. And the problem is that 
everybody on Twitter is now an epidemiologist, an infectious diseases physician, and a molecular biologist. Mm-hmm. And they go, this paper said soundbite summary of the paper that they saw on someone else's Twitter. And therefore, that means incredibly wrong conclusion. And that means we should incredibly stupid thing to do. And like the paper might get absolutely cut apart at peer review and not actually go on to be published in a, in a proper mm. journal. And But everybody's forgotten about that because Twitter has the corporate memory of a goldfish. It, it does. But also, it's, it's sort of interesting that this whole uh, preprint thing arose because we wanted to have more open science Uh, and it was so that you know your peers could then comment and it would be almost a live process of peer review rather than it being you know like a closed shop with it's sent off and nobody knows about it but the problem is as as you say everyone is now an epidemiologist molecular biologist and infectious diseases expert and so instead of people sort of going okay let's see what some experts or at least some of these people actually comment on it or whether it gets published we we just have amateur dissections of it. Well, um, those and- of us who did all go to the University of Dunning-Kruger and, uh, <laughs> and therefore are across it. No, I, I, I want to amplify that because when I looked at the, the Doherty paper, and as I say, I've only just skimmed it, I don't have a medical background. I don't have any biology. What I do have is when I did computing science, I did a unit on numerical methods and how you do this kind of modelling generally in any field. So at least I know what to look for and I am aware of the fact I know fuck all about the details of what it is that they've actually done, but at least I know enough to, to read their bit where they talk about further work needed or the caveats or the the thing to go, oh, I see what you've done. Yes, that variable there has an incredible sensitivity, which you've flagged. So therefore, I know to take all of that with a very big grain of salt. I think one of the, one of the things that I have periodically banged on about is, again, this problem, particularly of science journalism, where – you know, yeah. you, uh, a researcher has this awesome paper and they, you know, universities now run on metrics. If you don't get lots of media mentions about your awesome paper, then you get oh, you know, yeah. like, what are, you, what are you doing? So they kind of sex up their conclusion a little bit and give it to the uni's PR people who go, oh, this is awesome. So that means two mice didn't die. So that means all cancers will be cured, doesn't it? And the scientists go, oh, actually, no, that's not what I, and then, then the PR person passes it on to the journalist who then sort of summarizes <laughs> it a, a little bit more to make it sexy for the paper. And then the sub puts that on Twitter and gets it wrong somehow. And then everybody goes, oh, Lupley Divisecra did this research that said all cancer was going to be cured tomorrow. And then yeah. everyone sort of sits st- there going. And, and, then Aunt Mary, and then Auntie Mary dies of cancer and it's Lupley's fault. That's right. Well, I think it is just basically, you know, um, making people or rather journalists aware of the press releases. Uh, and the problem is, yes, yeah, so, I mean, these things are done by communications people and communications mm. people understand what, you know, what people are going to take note of and then mm. the same thing happens. It's sort of like a another amplification uh, with, with less precision when it gets wow. to publication in, in mainstream media. But I guess the other thing is that, you know, apart from it's not a question of scientific literacy, it's a question of accuracy in reporting and because these topics are so complex, I think, we, you know, people are just going to stick to tried and true headlines or mechanisms of, of uh, reporting something. So it's always going to be we found a, 
you know, cancer cure every single time for the last 50 <laughs> years. I know. Uh, how can there be cancer left? There's been I mean, so many amazing. miracle cures. Yes. Exactly. It's never sort of, for this specific cancer, this is the reason why this is good. I think you could, I think you could manage to report like that and it would still make more sense and be more accurate. I think the challenge is that, like, people want to, you know, you, you talk about some obscure, like, receptor signaling mechanism that you found in a cell and the journalist goes, oh, that sounds really boring. So what does that mean? Oh, well, this receptor is kind of involved in cancer cells. Oh, so this could be a cure for cancer. You go, oh, well, you know, very early stages kind of at some stage. They go, aha, right, cure ah, for so, cancer. So, yes, cure for cancer. I know, it's a thing. Well, look, to get back... Quickly, though, to the Doherty modelling. Uh, as I say, it is it is something that was developed and announced on the uh, what the thirtieth of July to support the national cabinet's decision of a month beforehand on the second of July. Uh, here is a little bit more from the seven AM podcast. Some of the political uh, action that's been taken on the back of this modelling is kind of relying on the the most optimistic scenarios. And even then, the modelling itself may change if there's another more virulent version of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of what-ifs. And even if we do reach 80% vaccination rates, states still can, you know, decide to lock down if they want to, um, particularly in subgroup populations where the vaccination coverage may not have reached yet. I mean, the other thing about these models is they're uneven. They're assuming that all of this stuff is happening at a uniform kind of in a uniform way across the country when that's not the case, that's not reality at all. Some states do better than others. So what this actually means is that phase C and D were endorsed by National Cabinet. In fact, all phases were. They came up with the phases before the modelling. But there is still no modelling to support phase C and D. So I guess um, the reason we stopped where we did was we said six months is a long time in this pandemic you know, we've evaluated what we've evaluated and assessed is how far we think we could get with 80% vaccine coverage based on the current circulating strains and assuming the population stays on board with behavioural measures and other things. Beyond that, we think it's just too hard to know what will be happening in the external context. And that's what they've modelled, six months. So really, the only detail we've got is getting from phase A to phase B. I mean, the point is it's still a model uh, yes. and it, it's not... A pre, you know, it's not a prediction of the future. This is not, you know, Nostradamus for infectious diseases. This is just, okay, based on the information that we have, taking a general view, and as you said before, with all these caveats, this is what we can predict. Uh, well, predict, you said predict. Well, I said predict, but it's also, it's not like a prophecy, you know, mm. I'm, you know, digging myself into a big hole. But <laughs> it's it's not set in stone, and so the modelling can change, and it will be dependent, uh, as 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 Rick points out, on you know what happens. Uh, there are other factors that can play, and regionality, all that sort of thing. And this is a problem because the general public hears modelling and science and whatever. And then two things happen, I think. One is if it then changes, there's ammunition for the, the weird people in society to go, see, all the modelling is fake. And then because the modelling informs the politicians' decisions, the journalists go, oh, so it's a backflip. Mm, absolutely. <sighs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and that's been a, a huge problem over the last 18 months or so 
uh, where people need to understand, that, you know, we're responding to this live constantly. We, we can base some of our responses on uh, uh, what we know about pandemics and epidemics and infectious diseases, but this is still an entirely new virus that we have to deal with. Sure, we've actually had to deal with SARS before in different forms, but there were smaller outbreaks and uh, we also kind of forgot about it for a long, long time. Uh, well, you know, and the original SARS virus also behaved quite differently in terms of its transmission dynamics exactly. than, than this one did. Everyone goes, oh, but SARS, you know, the first SARS, this is the second SARS, so it must just be the same. It's really not. It, it's, it's, it, it's the fourth SARS, I think, as far as yeah. I can tell, because there's, so, you know, SARS-1 was South, what was it, Southeast Asian Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Then there was Middle Eastern uh, respiratory well, MERS, syndrome. yes. Yeah, MERS. And I, Which is still sort of bubbling along, like a few is, cases yeah. here and there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so we're trying to respond as we can. Like the fact that we have vaccines a year later is still, to it's my amazing. mind, miraculous. Amazing. And it shows us what we can do if we really want to solve problems. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we, we everything is new here and we can do the best that we can. And so trying to – that is a, a bit of information that everything is really in flux constantly. It's something that's difficult to convey at the best of times, let alone during a pandemic when mm. everything is so very politically charged. And it's just worth pointing out that not only have we got vaccines 12 months later, but the, the mRNA vaccine is an entirely new type of vaccine. Like we've, we, this is the first mRNA vaccine. Everyone goes, "Oh my goodness, that means it's untested with human guinea pigs." But we, you know, in the setting we of did the trials, <laughs> yeah, we've done the trials, and we now have a new vaccine technology that's hopefully going to be useful well into the future. We will come back to the vaccines shortly, but right now, let's take a, a brief break for the housekeeping. Next week on this fabulous podcast, uh, it's a mystery guest. I haven't lined up anyone yet. That's my fault. Uh, but look, there's a few days left. We'll have someone. Don't worry about that. But the week after, uh, recording on the 24th from memory, is Dr Liz Buchanan from the Australian War College, all about the geopolitics of Antarctica and the Arctic. And uh, did you know, did you, here's a bit of trivia for you, the rectal temperature of a polar bear is one degree warmer than that of a human being. That's something I have learnt over the years. Uh, so Liz Buchanan on the, the 24th. And then the final episode in this series, the late winter series, will happen at the very end of winter, Tuesday the 31st of August. And that'll be special because I'll live stream it that evening. Somehow, we'll figure out the details uh, when we get closer. Uh, thank you to everyone, of course, who uh, supported the 9pm Late Winter Series 2021. You know who you are. You're all listed on the website. I will thank you uh, more individually from time to time. And for this episode, it's thanks to Alyssa Harris. Uh, she's taken out an Edict02 schooner subscription. Price of a schooner each month. You get podcasts. That's that's a thing that you can do. And uh, Keith Duddy again. Thank you, Keith, uh, who's uh, really enjoyed 
the podcast coming out weekly. Well, it's thank you to people like you who've made uh, that possible. Uh, if you'd like to join those people and make more things possible, two things. I mean, tell people about the podcast, obviously, like, subscribe, all of that stuff. I don't know whether liking and subscribing makes that much of a difference, but certainly telling people about it does because then they actually listen. Uh, and you can throw uh, a couple of dollars into the tip jar at the 9 com slash tip the 9pm edict.com slash tip or you can subscribe uh, and and buy conversation topics or trigger words and all those things. Okay, for a change of pace, let's do some trigger words now. Let's do two. And as you see, I'm drawing out folded up pieces of paper from the glass jar of transparency, the filthy glass jar of transparency. And here we have, oh, from Sheepy, who who is efficient at getting his trigger words in. Uh, the trigger word is temptation. Who wants to tackle temptation first? Uh, that that would be me eating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hazelnut chocolate right now is that is that oh <laughs> oh hazel I had hazelnut chocolate earlier. There's a thing it chocolate uh, as a temptation. I'm not that big a chocolate person though. You are. I'm not usually. Actually, I haven't eaten much chocolate in years, but suddenly, you know what is? I've just decided that it's third lockdown in two months, and I found this beautiful hazelnut chocolate. It was on sale, and now I can't stop eating it, and I feel better. Excellent. It's been a great placebo. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to have to blame um, Benjamin Law on Twitter for my temptation. He tweeted a, um, a, a picture before the weekend of some Whitaker's ca- um, Bundaberg brewed caramel chocolate. Ah, now, it's uh, funny you mentioned Whitaker's because mine was Whitaker's because it's currently on special at Coles. Right. Yes. Well, this um, this stuff is like the the Cadbury Caramello, but it's um, it's got ginger in the caramel, and it's brewed by the Bundaberg ginger beer people. It is so good. So well, that, that oh, I've wonderful. got a block of that ready to try later. I'll, at the end of the podcast, I will give that a taste test. I I recommend. Okay, I think that's enough about temptation. Thank you, Sheepy, and we'll do we'll do a second one. They're only trigger words. They're not a whole conversation topic. Although the difference is marginal at this stage. Oh, it's from Sheepy again. Oh. <laughs> See, I said he's efficient at telling me what the trigger words are. This word is follow. This is this is about plugs now, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know, is it? Do what you like with it. Follow. Please follow your GP's advice oh, yes. and ask questions at all times. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and be very careful about who you follow for health advice on Twitter because a good number of people who even look like they should know what they're talking about clearly don't. I mean, uh, I, yes. I, I, Let's I, not I, name names, but exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I even said, look, you know what? I'm not, I can't comment on this because my specialty is not infectious diseases. I'm not an epide- epidemiologist. so. And I'm about I to can, say, even if you were, epidemiology covers like a lot of stuff. 
Exactly, but yeah. I, I think that's really important to point out. Like, there's a there's a joke in hospitals that if you put five infectious diseases physicians in a room, you'll get, <laughs> you'll get seven different opinions on how to manage the patient, and that that applies to pandemic science as well. You know, like, you know, there's there's no right answers in medicine generally, and there's particularly no right answers in infection. And this is a, a, a you know a new and unprecedented in our lifetime situation. And so, of course, you're going to get different opinions from different people. And that is part of what you were saying before still that drives this uncertainty. People go, oh, but I heard on such and such a show that someone said this and then I watched 7.30 and then the different person who's from the same specialty, so surely they should be doing the group thinking or giving us the same advice, said something completely different. So you're all a bunch of idiots because you don't know what you're talking about. Well, actually, that's sadly how medicine works most of the time. That's why, <laughs> that's why, that's why my job isn't done by a robot yet. Well, that's why I should say I do like my GP because he's been a GP. I've mentioned him before. I, I, I won't name him because, yeah, fuck him. But um, he's been a GP for more than a quarter of a century. And so when we run into a weird thing, we accept that we don't know everything. We'll, we'll look that up and, uh, and see if we can find it. And that came up the other year when I got a, a wonderfully weird gut parasite that we, we went through so many different procedures for how the hell do we kill this? Um, and we ended up after two failed attempts and, and the first round of compounding pharmacist work spent an hour scouring CDC and WHO websites <laughs> concocting a plan which finally did work. But it was lovely to realise, no, we, I don't I don't know. Although he did... He did show signs of being about to give up because he did say at one point, look, just because it's there doesn't mean we have to kill it. Very good. We have now fulfilled the infectious diseases checklist of it is impossible for me to have a conversation with anyone without mentioning something about their weird bowel problem that they had once. (laughs) (laughs) These are the occupational hazards of my job. It's it's true, though, isn't it? Absolutely. I I mean, at least you made an effort to keep going because, you know, my my version of that story is, I mean, I haven't had a parasite, thank God, but it's – it's more like, oh, you know, you're not within the right age range, so don't worry about it. You know, it's pretty, it's, you know, you're just, you're just being overly sensitive. <laughs> it's like, well, thank you so much for that. Yeah, well, well, he did say to me once, and this is a few years ago, he said, oh, yeah, and I noticed my neck starting to do this and whatever. It's just, yeah, 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 necks are badly designed. You're getting old. They'll just do that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Uh, so follow from from Cheapy. Thank you very much. Catastrophe of vast proportions. We asked the Minister for Shipping to comment on that story, but she just yawned. <laughs> but who needs her when we've got you? What do you think about this issue? Do you have any thoughts? What are those thoughts? Will you tell us them? Any thoughts at all will do. If you have them, we want to hear them. Are you personally affected by this issue? Then email us. Or if you're not affected by this issue, can you imagine what it would be like if you were? Or if you already are affected by it, but don't want to talk about it, can you imagine what it would be like not to be affected by it? Why not email and tell us? Yes, why not? What possible reason could there be for you not to email us? (laughs) 
Certainly ignorance shouldn't be a bar. You may not know anything about the issue, but I bet you reckon something. So why not tell us what you reckon? Let us enjoy the full majesty of your uninformed ad hoc reckon by going to bbc.co.uk slash me and my important thoughts, all one word, clicking on what I reckon, and then simply beating on the keyboard with your fists or head. Here's some of the feedback we've had so far. Andrew from Eastbourne reckons it's a sad indictment of the way we live. Matthew from Ilkley reckons it isn't. Patricia from Southampton wonders what Wordsworth would say and thinks she knows. And James from Amersham would like the fire brigade quickly, for God's sake, he's trapped, he's trapped. Thanks for those, and keep those emails coming. It is, for some reason, apparently vital that you do. <laughs> that is, of course, David Mitchell and Robert Webb from uh, their TV show, That Mitchell and Webb Look, from some years ago now. Perfect. Um, but that's where we are, isn't it, with I, the I coronavirus? Mean, it, it is what, where we are with the coronavirus, but it's also kind of, I think, just the general state of media. At the moment. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and yeah. I, you know, I mean, media is trying to find, you know, they have time now. They have constant broadcasts. They've got, to, they've got to fill it with content in the sense that, you know, things are happening. The problem is that things are happening, but, you know, not as fast as we expect them. <laughs> That's know. right. Uh, and there is, there is a sense that, you know, the media happens – the media happens every day, and no matter what it is, yeah, we're now so used to this instant news cycle that yeah. a problem comes up, and the very next day is why hasn't why haven't they solved it? Whoever they might be. The the important thing to think about with the pandemic is that you know many of the people who are involved in responding in the pandemic and who end up on all these committees where they make all the decisions, you know, the people who have content expertise all get co-opted into committees or into government jobs where they are, you know, they have sort of public communications clauses and non-disclosure things, and you you know a lot of the people who you might necessarily want to be hearing what they reckon can't actually tell you and that the reckon vacuum on Twitter that gets <laughs> filled up by people who speak very loudly with very fervently held opinions is by people who perhaps weren't selected to be on those committees for, <laughs> for very whatever. good reasons. Yeah. Well, I didn't say that, but, you know, there, I'm sure there are an abundance of reasons that they might be. And Well, there might be an abundance of experts, let's say. There might be an abundance so of experts. so many experts that know about this that they can't possibly all be on the committee and like i said before you know there are going there's going to be a spread of opinions and you know it seems to be the way that journalism works now that you know if you if you're talking on the abc about industrial relations issues you get someone from the um you know the militant socialists collective and the bosses who want to beat their workers association to <laughs> Present their <laughs> present their wildly divergent opinions on employee rights, and funnily enough, they don't agree. And then the journalist goes, "There's the two sides of the story. Goodbye." Yeah, that's that's true. Speaking of the media, I want to play a clip from Monday's Corona Cast, the ABC Corona Cast, with Tegan Taylor, who's been on this pod before, and uh, Dr. Norman Swan. Um, it came up in the context, like as we as we started this, we've got different parts of the country in different lockdowns with uh, different strategies. So Tegan asked this question: 
Is it better to sort of deal with this whiplash of constantly going in and out of lockdowns or is it better to just have longer lockdowns? Just uh, go onto the streets of New South Wales if you can find somebody and ask them and they will say short, sharp, I'm sure. I'm sure too, but do we want to base our public health response on the reckons of randos in the street? And before you answer, I will say my theory here is Norman's in New South Wales. We've had six weeks, now we're in week seven. So if you ask people whether they want long lockdowns or short ones, they're going to say, well, short ones, because I hate this long lockdown. Whereas if you go to somewhere else that's had, you know, their nth short five or six day lockdown and say, what do you reckon? They're going to say, I would like to just have one and then then get it over and done with. That's my theory. But I think it's important, as we say, that we base our public health response on the reckons of randos in the street. You know, it's really interesting. I think, I mean, part of what's been happening is a, is a consequence of the current, you know, media reporting, political, everything climate, where we expect rapid responses, we present extreme mm. views uh, and so on. And we also have these alternate opinions, as it were, uh, that can Alternate sing. facts. Alternate facts, things that are not actual facts. <laughs> That's right. That just blatant falsehoods. And I think part of it is that, you know, I mean, yes, a lot of the people who should be commenting are probably on the committees doing the hard yards as it is, and they don't have time for the comms. But the other, the other thing is that there's no longer a sense of, we should listen to some experts that maybe you know this element the these people are the people who should we should consult uh it's more a case of well the government's probably going to be lying to us the medical establishment will be lying to us blah 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 conspiracy and so on and so looking for you know focusing on those aspects of it is part of the whole you know the the treadmill of this process I think the other important thing to remember is that there's not actually one correct answer to any exactly. of these questions. If you if you ask an economist what's the best way to deal with a lockdown, they'd say open Kill all the businesses yeah. and let the you know let the productivity you know happen and let us let people earn money and the old people who aren't productive and don't produce many GDP dollars can all die and then the young people can get back to work sooner and then that's that's sweet. If you ask a public health person, they say, well, we don't want anybody to die because, you know, we're public health people and it's our job to, to stop the spread of infection. And, you know, if you ask someone else with a different slant, they'll have probably have a, have a third opinion. And, you know, surely this is actually the job of the politicians to weigh all of these complete competing expert positions and say that the best thing in the best interests of most people overall is to do this. So well, there's, there's would, no there's no right that, answer. It's, that it's is where a you- beautifully, hopelessly romantic view of the role of politics. I mean, it, I mean it's true, but. <laughs> Does it happen anymore? And no. and am I with my you know rosy tinted view of the past? Was it ever a thing? Well, I, I, it, it probably was. Let's ask but... Jerry Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> the, but, but also, you have to consider that I keep coming back to this on 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 Twitter a lot, and and that is that we knew that a pandemic was a thing that could happen because of mm. mass transit, because of airline travel and you know people could go all over the world very rapidly in 24 hours 
And so an understanding of that is one reason why, you know, there was a lot of sort of mid-noughties panic about influenza, and that is why we have flu vaccines every year. We've had them, the so-called swine flu and whatnot, but the way that actually I suppose that's almost a control example because we didn't really have social media on this scale uh, then and how people responded. But the thing is like we have these, the annual flu vaccine is a consequence of thinking ahead politically of understanding and listening to experts. I've been going to seminars on influenza management uh, as you know, as a, as a researcher, research assistant, since I was, or since about 2002, right? So this was part of political planning and then people stopped taking it seriously, but they also, uh, you know, for whatever political ideological reasons stopped doing that as well. And so here we are mm. where we're ill-equipped. The government's got very comprehensive pandemic flu plans that, you know they had they had updated relatively recently, and then they kind of yeah. sit on a shelf because it's it's really difficult to get funding to do preventive health because preventive health doesn't generate any money. It, you know it, it it's averted costs which are much more difficult to measure, and everyone mm-hmm. goes oh, but you know swine flu was in two thousand and nine. There's probably you know we're worried that there might be another pandemic, but it's probably not that likely. So we'll we'll sort of put that down the bottom of the list, and then nothing happens, and nothing happens, and nothing happens, and then bang, coronavirus comes along, and then the first thing everybody says is oh but our pandemic plan is a pandemic flu plan therefore it's completely useless and we need to write again from scratch a pandemic coronavirus plan then you go well hang on it's actually mostly the same as the pandemic flu plan why don't we just oh no 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 it might not be right so then all of these people start doing all this busy work writing the new coronavirus plan absolutely and then when we get to the end of the covid pandemic people like me will be so sick of it those go i never ever want to do anything to do with covid again and then the plans will get shelved for five years and then maybe someone will revise them once like they did with the flu plan and then the you know the Exactly. pandemic astrovirus will come along and go, oh <laughs> shit we haven't got a pandemic astrovirus plan what do we do now oh, we better write one whereas well, astrovirus is not a thing can we be clear it, yes. it, it is a sort of virus but it's not a pandemic oh, okay. astrovirus yeah sorry um, i thought astrovirus is like space plague yeah no no um <laughs> uh, whereas the you know the sensible thing to do would be while everybody's sort of energized about the pandemic now would be to write a completely not completely, but as disease agnostic as possible pandemic plan that you can just kind of like print out a one pager for this year's pandemic is COVID and it spreads like this and we need to, its incubation period is this and the control measures that work best are these. And then you just kind of run with the plan that mostly works for most things most of the time rather mm-hmm. than reinventing the wheel every hundred years. Because and we then don't you have need some to. software that uh, uh, has the the kind of Doherty style modelling in it, and you say, okay, so as soon as you get the new disease, uh, do these measures, punch them into the equations. There's your first cut of what to do. Well, well, you know, I mean, the point is that communicable disease, communicable diseases or infectious diseases are called that for a reason because they behave <laughs> in very particular ways. They're communicable. Uh, and I think that hold on. A- I thought communicable meant you had to tell the authorities when you had it to communicate it. Have I got that wrong? That's notifiable. Notifiable. I choose to ignore that remark. <laughs> Dad joke. Um, but uh, it was. It was like it's. It's like this. We we have lost our understanding, at least in the West. I think. And again, this is another pet mm. 
gripe of mine that I do talk about often on Twitter, and that is that we think that infectious diseases are, are an issue of the past or they're to do with lack of mm. hygiene or they're lack, you know, it's, it's a poor people, poor country problem. And that is not the case. And it's not merely that, you know, you need to make, you know, bring poor countries up to standard and then we won't get diseased, although that would be really nice if we could take that approach. But the, the thing is that they behave in similar ways. It's, you know, and particularly if we've already had the experience with flu um, and we've had centuries of epidemics and pandemics to look at to understand how to respond. So the responses, the modelling is going to be similar for all kinds of potential future pandemics. Like, like for instance, you, you're going to have basic responses that you'll be able to implement simply because that is the nature of these diseases. What impressed me, and this follows straight on from that, is that the countries that responded really well to COVID-19 were the countries that had dealt with the original SARS and others really quite closely. So I'm thinking Taiwan, Vietnam, Thailand, and they went, oh, we've got this thing happening, we'll just grab the plan and do the plan. And, And I was conscious of that. I was last in Thailand. It's coming up to 18 months, 20 months ago for a conference, and there was a swine flu outbreak in Southeast Asia at the period. And suddenly, Mm. bang, they've got the posters and things. They've got everything at the airport. They're checking to see if you're carrying any pork products. And it was... It was just an absolutely routine thing. No dramas. Everyone knew what to do. Yeah, exactly. I, and I don't know how we've fallen by the wayside. Of this. Well, I mean, part of it is also now we have vaccine hesitancy in, in, in wealthier uh. countries. So given that that's the attitude towards infectious diseases where, oh, we don't need to vaccinate, they don't exist, or the vaccines are more harm than good, uh, you should get measles because it's just a rite of passage of childhood. That's mm-hmm. an understanding of the actual reality and the danger of these diseases is really quite... Uh, ill-informed or, you know, people people don't understand how bad it is and how bad it can be. I mean, that's weird because I, I am old enough to have had measles as a kid, to have had, well, same. not chicken pox, but shingles, the same thing. Um, but, yeah, we've, we've not got that. On, on the issue, though, of uh, vaccination hesitancy or even COVID denial. Uh, Here is uh, the fantastic news, we fantastic in scare quotes, news (laughs) from uh, Tuesday morning. Delta variant of COVID-19 has once again spread beyond Sydney's borders. Residents from the Northern Rivers region, including Byron Bay, Lismore, Richmond Valley and Ballina, are waking up under strict stay-at-home orders. It comes after a man travelled there whilst infectious last month. Unfortunately, this gentleman was infectious in the community for a while. He had symptoms for several days, so we are quite concerned. We knew it was coming, um, obviously hoping not, but uh, it has been confirmed and, uh, yeah, us and our three of our neighbouring LGAs are being shut down. There are concerns now that the Queensland and New South Wales border bubble could be paused. The Queensland Premier said she wouldn't hesitate to erect a ring of steel around the state if the Tweed region became impacted. So putting aside the questions of how you pause a bubble... And putting aside this whole ring of steel thing, which I've ranted about before, this was a guy who didn't believe the virus was a thing, 
travelled with other members of his family around the region, was coughing his way through the the, the north coast of, of New South Wales and did not go to hospital until he was really quite crook. He's not alone. We've got, we're going to have to deal with these people. And to go back to that original modelling, the polls show that 11%-ish of, us, of Australian adults say they will never get the vaccine. So we've got to get to 80% of them with the vaccine to get to stage C. This is going to be tough. Look, I, I think this is a really interesting issue because a lot of the time I think people focus too much on like people who are, you know, hardcore vaccine refusers. And, you know, uh, Julie Leesk is a, is a nurse and a social scientist from the University of New South Wales. I think she's from UNSW, sorry if you're not, Julie, um, uh, who has done lots of research on vaccine hesitancy. And there's really only a very small proportion of people who won't have the vaccine because vaccines are poison and cause the autisms and all that stuff that they don't do. Most people who are un- what we would call under-vaccinated, so eligible for a vaccine but not yet vaccinated, are under-vaccinated because they lack access to healthcare, because they live in remote areas without doctors, because they're culturally and linguistically diverse and don't understand the need to get vaccine because they work in casual, insecure work and can't afford to take the time off to go and get their vaccine. And, you know, the the wingnuts and the crazies uh, who go, vaccines are poison man, are such a tiny fraction of... Um, you know, the people who aren't vaccinated who could be, that we what we actually need to do is ignore them, try and contain their ability to spread misinformation to people who are genuinely unsure. By and then burying fo- them in a shallow grave. That is, that's one option, yeah. Not- Gravel into their pockets, toss them into a canal, that sort yep. of thing. Yep. But right. So fo- you as a public health professional, you would recommend that as an approach? I did not say that and you are misquoting me outrageously still. Um, <laughs> But um, uh, you we, know, we wish to advise that neither Trent nor I support these possible uh, approaches. That's, that's right. Thank you. Probably, Thank you, probably all for the best. Yes. Um, and, and then focus on limiting that ability to spread misinformation, and you know, increasing services to the underserviced. Is that's that's the way to get good vaccine coverage. Now, the challenge with COVID is that the very significant proportion of people who are vaccine hesitant are vaccine hesitant because of what they've read in the media and, you know, the, the what they perceive as flip-flopping about the AstraZeneca Oxford advice and, you know, all the challenges. So, uh, you know, it's, it's harder to deal when the misinformation in extreme scare quotes, for those of you listening, um, is, is the official information. So, yeah, look, it's a real struggle, but there's obviously always going to be people like this. It will have significant public health impacts. And, you know, we just need to, we, we need to focus on getting as many of the rest of those people vaccinated as possible, as quickly as possible. So the ability of people like this to cause damage from a public health point of view by spreading infection is as small as possible. I mean, it's a, it's, it's an ongoing challenge for uh not just science communicators, but, you know, medical professionals, everybody to to deal with anti-vaxxers. And as you say, the, the proportion is probably quite small. But we know that in certain regions, you know, vaccination rates are uh, lower because of them. And it's also a very complicated sort of feel, I think, and I agree that we need to give them less 
uh, coverage and, and, and less concern, but they do have an effect. And the other side of that is that, say, people have uh, doubts uh, partly because of their experiences with the medical profession or whatever reasons, and so that they will go looking for that information anyway. They want something, you know, a lot of this is just people, uh, some people are genuinely hesitant and looking for the best information and some people are looking for a justification for their existing fears. And uh, and that's also part of the problem, I think, with politicians is that they'll, you know, maybe go for the data that will suit the, the position that they want to take, which might be an economic political one rather than a public health one. Yeah, it's it's really complicated this whole interaction between politics and fear and misinformation uh, as regular listeners will know is one that does fascinate me before we um, move on I should just mention um, Dr Julie Leask L-E-A-S-K she's at the University of Sydney not NSW very similar University of Sydney I've linked to her profile but uh, I've just done a quick Google uh of, of news stories quoting her. And, yeah, she really does uh, have some interesting things to say uh, about vaccine hesitancy. Speaking of vaccines, of course, uh, we did have some good news this week. Good evening. Australia has another weapon in its arsenal to fight COVID. With confirmation a short time ago that a third vaccine is approved and due to arrive next month. The TGA has given Moderna the green light, with 10 million doses to be added to the country's stocks before the end of the year. Now, the Moderna vaccine is another mRNA vaccine, like Pfizer, but not like AstraZeneca. Who wants to explain what mRNA vaccines are all about? As you both run for the hills and go, no, 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 no. Who wants to go first, Trent, you or me? <laughs> I, I can talk about it a little bit. Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm, biologist. yeah, go for it. I'm <laughs> very happy to pass the ball on this one. Okay, so, <laughs> right So, the I mean, they with... change your DNA and turn you into aliens, don't they? That's basically what they do, according and give to you, and give you five. According to my extensive research. <laughs> Well, as someone who recently got the Pfizer vaccine, I'm still waiting for those extraterrestrial abilities. I haven't uh, developed any gills or superpowers yet, so I'm a bit disappointed. I know, uh, it's such so, a rip-off. <laughs> it is. They promise so much and there's so little. <laughs> um, except for protection against a deadly virus. Uh, I so, know, I know. <laughs> the point of a vaccine is to prime your immune system to recognise it faster uh, to recognise an infection faster and to deal with it, and preferably, if possible, to deal with it without you becoming very ill, uh, which is what usually happens. So if you get, a, you know, if you get an infectious agent and you become ill from it, you will actually end up with antibodies. A vaccine gives you the antibodies without giving you the illness. How do we get these antibodies? Well, uh, we need to provide a chunk of the infectious agent in some way uh, and then the body the immune system the body's immune system will recognize it as something that is not self that it's from outside the body that it's infectious and it will generate an immune response and antibodies so how do we introduce it that's the next step so a lot of the vaccines that we take as usually when we're babies uh, is um, a fragment of the infectious agent or it's what's called an attenuated version, which is a weakened version of the actual uh, virus or bacteria or whatever it might be, not usually 
bacteria, but still. Uh, but the other approach that you can now take is we don't have to have like huge chunks of an infectious agent. We can actually just use single proteins that are relevant. So these proteins might be on the surface of the infectious agent. Uh, and that's what the antibodies are generated against. Pfizer and Moderna go a step even further back. So it's not just like the whole virus or an attenuated virus or a frag, you know, uh, an, a fragment of it or just the protein. It's actually going back and saying, here is the coding for that protein. We're going to put that coding inside, you know, inside your body so that it's taken up by cells. It will be displayed by cells, which is what happens in any normal vaccination, and then your body will generate antibodies. So if you if if you'll pardon the small molecular biology lesson here, oh, we know that DNA gets translated, and that translation, so the information within a DNA or within a gene is translated by RNA, and then RNA tells the cell to please make that protein uh, that the DNA encodes. Uh, so the translation happens with the MR with RNA or messenger RNA in this case. So it's like uh, you've got the file, someone reads the file and then takes it along and that's what the mRNA does. And then it says to the cell, hey, make heaps of me. <laughs> so what we're doing is we're cutting out a whole bunch of steps with an mRNA vaccine. We're just saying here's the mRNA, here's loads of it. You don't actually have to necessarily... Uh, you know, partially infect a, a, a cell or whatever it is or wait for an infection, here's the instructions, just make heaps of protein. The protein gets displayed because the instructions are in the mRNA uh, and then, bingo, you get an antibody response. Magic happens. Did that make sense? That, that did, <laughs> yes, that did make sense. And and I, I am now, okay, that's very clever. It's it is, really it is. It's amazingly clever. It's gloriously clever because, you know, gene therapy using RNA or DNA has been such a, you know, such a difficult thing. And, and quite a lot of my doctoral work, uh, my unfinished doctoral work, I, I, I must add, uh, was on trying to deliver RNA, short RNAs, for the reason that we can interfere with gene expression because we're stopping it at that level of, you know, after, after the information has been released from the DNA, and, 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 and then the instructions are, please make. And here's the copy. Here are the instructions on how to make it. So my work is on trying to deliver that RNA to adjust that process. But this is using that mRNA to say, okay, here's just, you know, we're, we're going to deliver heaps of it and bypass all of these other processes. I, I find it really hard to describe all of this in words without sort of, you know, uh, you, you really do need uh, pictures, but just to show you for your benefit is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, okay, Upali is currently, she's grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and is currently writing down something which, or drawing a diagram which she's going to hold up to her webcam. This is classic stuff. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, okay. this is so this is does that make any this sense is whatsoever? not Walkley Award-winning stuff. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so look, basically, if the DNA has the instruction here, it gets read uh -huh. by mRNA. That's messenger RNA, and yep. then it really acts like a messenger. It says, you know, it goes out of the nucleus and it says, "Hey, here's the information that you need to make it." 
So if you have in lots the rest of, of the cell, in the right. rest of the cell, right? And so if you have heaps of because a cell mRNA, is just a factory for making shit. It is a factory for making proteins. Right. I just. Oh, okay. Not just proteins. No, obviously. no, it does other stuff. But okay. the DNA codes for proteins. Uh huh. Primarily, and it has a whole lot of information, but it has. You know, it's mainly about encoding proteins. So if you have heaps of mRNA, the cell goes, oh, there's lots of instructions. That's a lot of mRNA that we have to make. So they make an, uh, an extra amount. Of it. And, that's, and that's where that bypass is because you're just sort of saying rather than, uh, you know, um, providing the virus to provoke the immune system, you just say, look, make the protein. The cells will recognize it as not self. I was just going to say it's worth pointing out that the AstraZeneca vaccine actually works mostly in the same way. So mm. it also delivers mRNA for the spike protein of, of the coronavirus, but the way that it does it is with a is what's called a viral vector. So there's a sort exactly. of a weak a weakened virus that they've stuck that spike protein RNA in, and then that virus gets into your cell, it releases the, the mRNA, and then the cell does exactly the same thing at the end. It's just the way of getting that mRNA into the cell that's different between the two vaccines. Ex exactly. And and so really, there, there are three mRNA vaccines, or at least RNA vaccines out there. The problem has always been with gene therapy and with these kinds of RNA vaccines is getting it inside the cell because you just want to use the, you know, the you've got the cell as a factory, you want to use that equipment, you just need to give it the instructions and how you give it the instructions is the, is the difference. And so Moderna and Pfizer just use something called a liposome, which is like a little... It's, it's a little envelope a of fat. lipid. Liposome is a fat, isn't it? Yeah. Li Lipo is fat. Yeah, fats, lipids, you know, uh, and they just encase it as little, um, you know, little mini, extremely small nanocapsules, as it were. And uh, as opposed to the incredibly large nanocapsules that exist elsewhere. Well, there are other capsules. <laughs> <laughs> there are microcapsules. Anyway, so uh, that, that's this how is they get falling into, into disrepute. Yes. <laughs> so because it's very difficult to get nucleic acid across the cell membrane, you have to package it. So if you use a virus, it's got a protein coat and it has the ability to invade a cell. So that's what's clever about the AstraZeneca is that it's using those viral components, but the virus isn't actually going to infect you because it doesn't have the information to reproduce ah. itself. It just has the uh, equipment to deliver the uh, mRNA to the cell. So the only material difference is the way that it's delivered. Finally then, and thank you, that really did help Sorry. a lot. No, 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 it really did help a lot. Finally then, and, and we'll wrap on this question, how do you each feel that the next six months will go or into 2022? This is serious tell-us-your-reckons territory. Very slowly. Yeah? Yeah. I think... Um, as, as we have a higher rate of vaccination, I mean, I, uh, I, there's a lot of claims that, you know, we there's vaccine hesitancy, but I don't think that that's necessarily the case. You know, I think people really are desperate to get a vaccine. They just want to get what they think is the right vaccine. Uh, and maybe I, I wouldn't be willing to make any kind of prediction or guesses until, like, November. <laughs> it will, as Trent says, be slow. <laughs> can, can, can I just say, from a journalistic point of view, predictions for 2021 given in November 2021 are, <laughs> are no longer newsworthy. 
<laughs> well, we've we've we're, we're nearly at two years of this, you know. Where I know, we, yeah, and, and so we should be developing some understanding of how this might pan out and how we need to deal with it. Uh, these behaviours should should sort of now be second nature to us rather than oh god not again <laughs> yes and ju- journalists should be more or less prepared to answer sensible questions at press conferences instead Absolutely. of bleating about walls of steel yes you know i think the best way to answer that is to say six months ago could you have predicted we, we be where we are now with like all of the eastern seaboard lockdown in some in some extent and you know the the delta strain coming out and all of the issues with its increased transmissibility uh, have, you know, really weren't on the radar six months ago and so you know to say oh well in six months everything is going to be fine when in six months, something else could have happened equally as different and as unpredictable as the Delta has proved to be in the last six months. You know, it, it really, you've, the doctors hate it when people ask us for predictions because you, and it comes back to what we were talking about with risk is, is people aren't good with dealing with uncertainty. And, you know, what do you think is going to be happening in six months? I don't know, is not a very satisfactory answer. I think that that's a really good point. It's not necessarily risk that people don't understand it's just the uncertainty and the way that we explain that you know dealing with uncertainty is very very difficult if you're not used to it and being in science whether it's medical or other is about dealing with uncertainty and uh, making that just part of your general understanding of the world um, that you have to just keep coming up with the best evidence that you can to understand what's happening wow can i I add one more thing I was going to say, I think, as I said, that I think that there's a very odd attitude or understanding towards communicable diseases that's risen in wealthier countries because we're not used to dealing with them as, as, as much as we used to. But one thing that I think people might find useful to read is this really wonderful book called The Year of Wonders by uh, Geraldine Brooks. And it details how... You, you'll gain a better understanding of how diseases spread from it. It's actually set in sort of like I think the 14th, 15th century or so, maybe a bit earlier, uh, but it's just about a woman dealing with a disease outbreak in her local town village. Really beautiful, really well written, but it will give you an understanding of where people and scientists are coming from. Uh, and also understand how we track these things and how we understand how they spread. And hopefully that will give people a nice sort of overview and understanding of what what this massive chaos that we're undergoing is about and how it works. My my favourite disease-related book is called The Ghost Map by Stephen Johnson, and um, it's a fantastic uh, look at what happened with... um, cholera in London and, you know, the story of the Broad Street pump and all of those really classic public health stories. But it tells a really, really great picture of um, of, of England and how they initially responded. So I, I'd very thoroughly recommend that one. Well, I'm glad we're ending on uh, learning things through books, which is a more positive note than, oh, I don't know, we're all going to die. So Upali Divasekra, Dr. Trent Yarwood, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks for having us. And that, dear listener, is all the eating for now. I hope you've learned something. Please do all the things and support the pod. Tell your friends. Go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. 
Uh, watch Twitter or whatever to see who's on next week. But until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. And before I go, a couple of quick things we didn't have time to talk about on the main part of the pod. There are some bonus links on the website uh, to tell you about this. Uh, first, there are so many people who want to get back into college in the US but don't want to get vaccinated that currently fake vaccine cards and vaccine certificates and so on are selling on the black market for 400 euros. That's uh, more than 500, well over 500 Australian dollars. I mean, just getting the vaccine is free, right? I find that incredible. Uh, And also... There's a link to an explanation of why no COVID-19 is not a Chinese bioweapon. The TLDR version is it's a pretty shit bioweapon bio if it takes three days to a week to take effect and only kills 10% of the people who get it. God, conspiracy theorists are such dumb fuckwits. The 9pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry. <laughs>